Good morning. How are you all doing today? You guys sound so good singing. Isn't it great singing in this place? Like, uh, this is a place that's built for congregational singing, and I just, I just love it. I love to hear the voices. So if you are joining with us for the first time this morning, we began a series a couple weeks ago, actually last week, not a couple weeks ago, but we began a new series called A New Name. And we are talking together about this new name that toward the end of this month we're going to be voting on. Uh, We've talked about changing the name of our church to Christ Congregational Church, or more simply, Christ Church. And I've always thought it would be great to have a name that preaches. And this is a name that preaches, because this is the kind of church that God longs for us to be, a church that is grounded in and centered in Jesus Christ, a church that is, it it draws its life from Christ. It seeks to pattern its life after the way of Jesus. It seeks to uh, bear witness to the good news about Jesus and bring glory to Jesus. And this is the kind of church we want to be, amen? And so this morning, we're uh, continuing on in this series. And again, the point isn't to talk about a name change. The point is to talk about what it means to be a church that is centered in Jesus Christ. And so as part of that, uh, what we said we're going to be doing uh, last week, this week, and the coming weeks is we're going to be looking at some of the great uh, Christological passages in the Bible, some of those great texts that exalt uh, the identity, the glory of Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, one of those texts today in Colossians chapter 1. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Colossians chapter 1. I do feel like uh, this is one of those texts that to me feels like a great ocean. There is so much here, and I feel like a little Dixie cup trying to get down in the ocean and pull something out for you all. But... um, But I'm going to do my best this morning, and uh, by God's grace, uh, uh, he will help us this morning as we look at this passage. But let's pray together, shall we? God, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and minds, that you'd give us ears to hear, and I pray that you would enable me, O God, uh, to bring honor and glory to you through the teaching this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. So I wanted to uh, get us thinking this morning about this passage by showing you this image and uh, raising this question for you. If you were to randomly ask 10 people, maybe in your neighborhood or at your school or your place of employment or whatever, to identify the person in the portrait behind me, How many of them do you think would be able to do it? Maybe all of them? And they would say it too. Come on, you can feel a little bit more confident than that. We're in church, the answer is always Jesus. This is actually Warner Stallman's famous 1941 painting, uh, The Head of Christ. And I think what is interesting and most surprising to me is not only that people who we know could identify somebody who lived 2,000 years ago, I think what's most surprising is we don't even know what Jesus looks like. 
And yet, despite that, Jesus still has great face recognition in American culture. I mean, he is right up there with superstar athletes like LeBron James or a President Donald Trump. You can look at him and there he is, Jesus, you know. But I think while most people could identify his portrait, I wonder how many different answers we would get to the question, who is Jesus? And I think if you were to combine together all of the answers to that question, you might come up with a picture that looks like this. Uh, This is thumbs up Jesus, or the Jesus of good causes, or as I like to refer to him as, is Bono in a bathrobe. And the Jesus of good causes depends on who you are. Uh, Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung suggests some of these. There's Republican Jesus, who is against tax increases and activist judges, and for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus, who's against Wall Street and Walmart and for reducing our carbon footprints. There's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee and drives a hybrid and loves spiritual conversations. There's Yuppie Jesus, who encourages each of us to reach our full potential, to reach for the stars and to buy a boat. (laughs) There's open-minded Jesus, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for those people who are not as open-minded as you. There's boyfriend Jesus, who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. (laughs) I'm sorry, that one gets me every time. And then uh, there's my favorite, there's uh, touchdown Jesus, who helps Christian athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcome of Super Bowls. Well, it all reminds me of Adolf Hardonk's wry observation that we all have a tendency to look at Jesus down the long well of human history and find our own face staring back at us. I think a lot of us have that tendency to take Jesus and to ask him basically to endorse how we already think and believe about life, the kind of political party we embrace, the ideologies we want to propagate. Uh, We want Jesus to come and basically to get in our life and to endorse what we think and what we feel and what we believe. But of course, the Jesus that's revealed to us in the text that we're looking at before us does not fit so nicely and easily into our pre-existing life and categories. Rather, this vision of Jesus demands not that we take him into our little worlds, but that rather we fit ourselves into his. And so I want to invite you to to look together with me at this vast, this expansive, this cosmic vision of Jesus given to us in this passage. Now, the passage begins in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. And what I want you to see as we look at this vast, expansive vision of Jesus here is that to really encounter this Jesus is number one, to get a transformed mind or worldview. Number two, we're going to see it is to have a reoriented life. And then finally, we're going to see that it's to get a new song in our heart. And so we see something in this text for our minds, for our lives, and for our hearts. Now, scholars uh, point out that this song or that this text that we're looking at was probably an original hymn that was written maybe even before the text of Colossians. And Paul, maybe the way sometimes a preacher will quote a great old hymn and incorporate it into the sermon. 
Some people suppose that Paul maybe takes this old hymn that Christians were singing and he incorporates it into the text. And the reason why people believe that is because there's this poetic rhythm and structure to the hymn. And there's basically two parts, uh, two main stanzas to the hymn. The first deals with Christ and creation, and then the second deals with Christ in relationship to the new creation or to reconciliation. But I want you to see how first looking at this poem together, looking at this uh, hymn together, we are first given a new mind, a new worldview. And look what it says in verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Now, did you notice that repeated phrase in the text over and over and over again? You hear that it's again and again and again. It's that phrase, all things. And uh, let's see if I can get this uh, pen working here. It talks about all things were created by Christ. And then he talks about how all things were reconciled or redeemed by Christ. You know, back when I was in college, I remember taking Philosophy 101. And in my Philosophy 101 class, I had this textbook, and the title of it was, Does the Center Hold? And it was about kind of philosophy in the Western world. But in that textbook, the author defined philosophy like this. They said it was a set of beliefs concerning the way reality is, basically how people see reality. And what I want you to see about this text that we're reading is that it is giving us a Christian version of how reality is. It's inviting us to see reality, and at the heart of reality is Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom all things were made. Do you see how expansive the scope is? Nothing sits outside of the scope. It is all things. You know, back when um, I was in Albuquerque, it was my perception that uh, the best ice cream I could get was at this uh, little place in um, uh, the heart of the city. Uh, i trying to remember the name of it, but it's, I'm looking over at my friends over here. It's, um, it was in this, uh, like, shipping containers that were uh, green jeans. What was the name of the ice cream place there? Anyway, in my previous worldview in Albuquerque, that was the best ice cream you could buy. But then when I moved here to Sierra Madre, I discovered that uh, there was something even better than that. And it's Mother Moose salty chocolate ice cream. And so I took a new belief into my pre-existing worldview, and it kind of neatly fit inside of all of the belief system that I already had. I just kind of had to change out one little thing here or there. You know, they say that when the gospel first began to take hold in India, missionaries will talk about how many Hindus immediately 
accepted Jesus. And some missionaries would go and they'd preach Christ to them. And immediately people would say, yeah, we'll take Jesus into our life. And the missionaries were stunned and they were so excited. They were like, wow, everyone is, is getting converted to Christianity. And, uh, but what they came to realize is that the Hindus actually took Jesus in, but only as one of about 300 million other gods. And rather than them coming and having a whole new way of looking at life kind of oriented around Jesus, they took Jesus into their pre-existing way of looking at life. And I think American Christians do the very same thing. We have our own version of the good life, of an ever-increasing standard of living, a life that is marked by technological, you know, consumeristic militarism and all of this. These are the things in the world that make us safe and happy. It's the military, it is consumerism, it is technology. And we take Jesus into our life because he's gonna help us in the afterlife and get to heaven or whatever. But this is not what happened in the first century. When they took Jesus in, it meant, an incre- it, it meant a brand new transformed mind and outlook, a whole new way of looking at reality. In fact, there's a, a book on philosophy called A Brief History of Thought written by a French author named Luc Ferry. And it's uh, one of the best sellers. It, it was on the bestseller list uh, for eight years in France. And Luc Ferry is a secular humanist. He's not a believer. He doesn't believe in God. But he makes the point that he said, when I graduated with a PhD in philosophy in 1968, he said it was still possible to get through your entire studies in philosophy with knowing next to nothing about Christianity. And he said, this is a travesty. He said, because what I've come to see is that Christianity is actually a philosophy in the sense that it's an outlook on ultimate reality. It covers the scope of all things. And Christianity brought into the world a whole new way of looking at reality that transformed Western history. And that actually produced art and architecture and culture and transformed our notions of human rights and ethics because it was an entire outlook a whole new way of seeing reality. And so I wonder for you whether or not Jesus has come and transformed your mind. Jesus is the creator of all things. It says he is the firstborn over all creation. That, first, that word firstborn, it can sound kind of like uh, Jesus was the first created thing out of a whole long line of created things. He was the first, he's the firstborn, and then the rest came. But that's to read this word firstborn through our own 21st century lenses. In the first century, the word firstborn didn't primarily carry the the meaning of first in a line of many. Rather, it meant the preeminent one, the most important one. And so your firstborn son, your firstborn, got all of your inheritance. They got your land. They took over the business. They took your status. They got it all because they were the firstborn, the preeminent one. And what this is saying is that Jesus is the firstborn He is the preeminent one over all creation. And then he goes on and he says, because by him all things that exist were brought into being, whether things visible or things invisible, rulers or authorities or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Now, don't misunderstand what he's saying here. He is not saying, if you're new to Christianity, that the the belief of Christians is not that the man Jesus existed for all eternity past as a man, and that there was this man Jesus in heaven who was, you know, calling all things into being. 
Rather, this text is a is it, it, it calls to mind Christ before the manger, Christ before humanity. He existed from all eternity past as the eternal Son of God, the second member of the triune God, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and who has existed from all eternity past as the God who forever is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is the ground of all being, who himself is the eternal infinite ocean of love and wellness and existence and being. And out of God's infinite, eternal well of his very self, he calls into being all things through the agency of the eternal son. I was uh, talking to um, a friend of mine who's, who's not a believer uh, he's, a, he's a scientist, he works at JPL, and we had lunch the other day, and we were kind of chatting about um, kind of the, the big questions of life. And he's captivated by this question of, uh, why is there something rather than nothing? And he's not yet, he doesn't believe in God, he calls himself an atheist, but he said this, he said, I still use the M word to describe ultimate reality. He said, I can't get around it in any other way. He said, my scientific friends don't like the M word, which is, of course, the word Miracle. He said, but think about it for a second. He said, if you were to go back to just seconds after the Big Bang, and you were to put a box over everything that existed in reality, and then you were to speed time forward 13.8 billion years, and he said, and you were to lift off the box, he says, you would have poetry, and delicious food, and human culture, and iPads, and MacBook Pros and technology, and you would have beauty and art and all that is around us in the world. And he would say, I, he said, time really doesn't resolve the mystery. He says, it's still a miracle. And what the Christian confession is, is that God, the triune God, who is this ocean of love, calls into being all things through the agency of the eternal son. The real shocking thing is not that Christians profess to believe in a God who is creator. The shocking thing about Christianity is that the eternal son enters into creation and takes on humanity. But more on that later. But don't you see what Paul is giving us here in Colossians 1 is a, it's a new transformed way of seeing ultimate reality. All things were brought into being by the eternal Son, Jesus Christ. All things have been redeemed by Christ. But I want you to see, not only does this invite us into a transformed mind, but secondly, it invites us into a reoriented life. To really get this vision is to reorient our entire life around Jesus. Look back at the text. I want you to see uh, something here. We'll go back to the, uh, where is it? There it is. Now, I want you to see in the top half of the, the passage, he is talking about creation. And he says that through Christ, God has created all things. But the second half of the passage, he's talking about reconciliation, redemption, salvation. And I want you to see how far redemption stretches. The scope of God's redemptive, reconciling work is nothing less than all things. Do you see that? Through him, God has reconciled to himself, how many things, class? All, all things. All things have been reconciled to God 
through Jesus Christ. That means that the scope of redemption is nothing less than creation. You remember the hymn, Charles Wesley, Joy to the World? Remember it says he makes his blessings flow as far what? As far as the curse is found. Think about areas in human life, in human existence, in ultimate reality that have been touched by brokenness and rebellion and human sin. It's been tainted. There is the scope of where God's redemption will travel and heal. And the resurrection of Jesus is just, it's the beginning of new creation. When God will make all things new. You know, at the end in the book of Revelation, it doesn't say, behold, I make all new things. You know, sometimes there are people that, um, they're the kind of people where something gets broken and they toss the thing out and then they just go buy a whole new one. And then there are other kind of people who you got something broken and you go and you fix it, right? You're all about redeeming that which is broken. And this is God's project. He doesn't say, behold, I make all new things. He says, behold, I make all things new. All that has been broken and marred by creation has been the recipient of God's saving work in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation that will one day flood and fill all reality. And this means at least this. It means that all of life is all for Jesus. All of life is all for Jesus. You know, I became a follower of Jesus back when I was uh, 16 years old. And I grew up in a Christian home, and I kind of knew about Jesus. But uh, the thing that was really meaningful to me, that was most important to my life, it was surfing and girls and being popular. That was kind of like what was at the center of my life. Uh, but then when I was, in, when I was uh, 16 years old, I had this dramatic spiritual awakening. And Jesus Christ, who was at the periphery, all of a sudden moved to the center of my life. And I became a real Jesus freak. Like, I was just crazy about the Lord, and I would talk to my friends about Jesus. I invited all my friends to church, and, and there was a point in time in my life where um, every night of the week, I was going to church. And so on Monday nights, we went out to go hear this uh, evangelist named Greg Laurie, and then on Tuesday nights, we would go to a friend's youth group. And then on Wednesday nights, we'd go to my youth group. Then on Thursday nights, my parents had a Bible study at our house. And then on Friday night, my youth pastor had a Bible study. Then on Saturday nights, we didn't have Bible studies. And so we went out street witnessing down in downtown Long Beach. And then on Sundays, we went to church. And then on Sunday uh, nights, we would go to, um, we started another Bible study at my house because we needed more Bible study. And in my mind, I created, I started to develop this dualistic outlook on life. And it looks something like this. Uh, there was a part of my life that I considered sacred. That was kind of like the church stuff. And then there was the part of my life that was secular. And my sacred life, I would put in, this, that doesn't really look like the word sacred, does it? <laughs> Can you guys just humor me? Just say, yeah, it looks great. Yeah, come on, go with me. So in my sacred life, I had my church attendance, I had witnessing, kind of street witnessing, I had Bible reading, and I had prayer. And whenever I was engaged in those kind of activities, I thought, now I'm doing what God wants me to do. 
But then I couldn't make sense of the rest of my life, my secular life. And so over in my secular bucket, I had, you know, surfing, and then I worked at a surf shop, and then I went to school, and I had all my subjects in school, and, and I just couldn't see how, like, those things could really honor God. And so then I thought, I know. Maybe if I can invade my secular life with some of my sacred activities, then it would make them important. And so, for example, if I could bring my Bible to school and at the quad at lunch I could read my Bible, then I could make use of school time and it could become better. Or if I could use school and class time to witness to my friends, then I could make that better. Or if I could invite friends to church or whatever, then I could make it better. And then some people have taken the opposite track. And they've said, if we could take our secular professions and we could use them to serve the church, then, you know, we can, we can make them valuable. And so being a doctor is fine and well, but, you know, if you really want to, you know, serve God, then you take your doctor skills and you go on a mission trip for two weeks and you serve the poor in Africa. Or, you know, you're a contractor, or an electrician, and that's, ah, uh, that's fine. But if you really want to honor Christ, you take your skills and you serve the church in our building project. Which, by the way, if you want to, that's fine. But you take your secular activities and you bring them into the sacred. And in so doing, I, I was trying to find how I could make sense of life. And then I discovered Colossians 1. In Colossians 1, I got a whole renewed vision of life. And it was more like, uh, wait, where's my, uh, let's go back. There. In Colossians 1, what I discovered is that Colossians 1 really destroys the sacred-secular divide. There is only one realm of all things, and Christ is Lord over every bit of it. Christ rules over every sphere, every aspect of life, or as the great uh, Dutch Calvinist Abraham Kuyper once declared, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence that Christ, who is Lord over all, does not look at and say, mine. Every aspect of life can be lived under the lordship of Jesus and to the honor of Jesus. That's why later in Colossians it says, and so whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's why in Romans chapter 12, where uh, the Old Testament Israel was all used to worship, was about me taking my animal down to the uh, altar and laying it there before the priests. And Paul says, no, take your life down to the altar and let your whole life be an act of worship to God. Or we could put it like this. Creation in the beginning was good. And all of life was meant to be lived to the glory of God and to actually to benefit and serve other people. And so whether you made music or poetry or art, whether you built construction projects, you were putting in electricity or whatever, that was all intended by God to serve the human community, to honor and glorify, by, to honor and glorify God by being an act of love to God's people, by caring for the created world that we live in. But now creation has fallen, it's broken. And it's broken. And so now what the Christian life looks like underneath the lordship of Jesus is seeking to see his healing, reconciling work be brought to bear in every part of created life. And so, for example, 
Uh, I had a class this last, uh, a couple years ago, with uh, the president of a Fuller Seminary named Richard Mao. And Rich Mao uh, told us a story about going and visiting a bunch of uh, Dutch egg farmers in uh, Canada. And uh, they developed this Christian association of egg farmers. Isn't that awesome? Like, what on earth are you going to talk about in a Christian association of egg farmers? Well, they realized that our world was out of step with God, and it needed reconciled. It needed to be healed and brought back, even in this area of how chickens were treated. And so they would get together in their meetings, and he said they would say, you know, we know that chickens are not our brother, but they're also not just a hunk of meat either. There's something other, and, and, and to be an egg farmer means to respect the integrity, the chickenness, the createdness of that chicken. But do you see what they're doing? They seek to bring even this realm of life, the, the reconciling love of God even to bear there. And that's our invitation as a community, to seek to bring the reconciling, healing rule of Jesus over every part of life that's broken. Can you think of some areas in your life that are broken? You know, it struck me as I was thinking back on my, how I thought about this when I was a kid. You know, um, I didn't know any of my neighbors, and yet I went to church every night of the week. Do you think God's intention for the neighborhood is that people not know each other? Or is God's intention for the neighborhood for community to develop, for meals to be shared? And yet I had no time and space to do that because I was so caught up in the secular or in the sacred that I had no room in my life for actually living every part of my life underneath the rule of Jesus. And of course, surfing. Surfing is one area of life that sinfulness is never infected. <laughs> but even there, I want to live underneath the rule of Jesus. But every aspect of life, we want to live underneath the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Are you seeing that in this text? Finally, I want you to see that this not only gives us a transformed, renewed mind, and not only reorients our life, but this text also puts a song in our hearts. Remember what I said in the very beginning, this text actually is a song of praise to Christ. It falls on the heel of a prayer. Paul, in this text, is praying to God, and at the very end of his prayer, he prays that the church would be filled with thanksgiving. Verse 12, uh, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share with the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him, and he bursts off into the song, and I think what he's, he's, he's really praying is that we as followers of Jesus would be so caught up by the magnificence and the glory of the cosmic Christ that we would join the song. This wouldn't just simply be a matter of our worldview or even of our lived life, but it would actually be something that impacts our hearts and our passions and our loves. I'll put it like this. Paul... The guy who wrote this, he began his life as somebody who hated Christians and was actually trying to persecute them. And in his mind, it would have been absolutely anathema for Christians to celebrate and sing to Christ. That was just so far from what anyone should do. And so he was seeking to put Christians in jail. And he was transformed 
And he was utterly changed. How and why? Well, I think the answer is found in what he came to see about Jesus in verse 19. For in him, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or as he says in chapter 2, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I think for some of us, we, we think that the Trinity is like God being divided into three parts. You've got one-third Father, one-third Son, one-third Holy Spirit. Anybody here think of it like that? You did, didn't you? But here he doesn't say that one-third of God dwelt in the man Jesus. Rather, it was the fullness of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are eternally 100% God. You don't have a third God, a third God, and a third God. You have true divinity, and yet the true divinity is forever a unity of three distinct loving personalities, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the full extent of God, Paul came to see, dwelt where? In the man, Jesus. You know, I said earlier that uh, we don't really know what Jesus looked like. But there has actually been a lot of work done recently on what Jesus may have looked like. And there was actually a, 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 a study put out a while back um, by a woman who spent like a great deal of her academic work kind of studying the gospel, studying clothing styles for first century Jews. Uh, they have a skull that they found of a first century male that they felt like was an average male. And they kind of like did all this work and they came up with a, uh, a Jesus that looks like this. Now, I do want to point out that the, the study also found that he was probably 5'6", which I've always believed was the size of perfect humanity. And <laughs> indeed. But you know what struck me about this image? Like you think about the full picture that we're given of the eternal son in this text from eternity existing before all things, holding all things together, the agent of creation. And yet he becomes a first century male born in the obscure village of, of Nazareth, living in a backwoods part of the Roman Empire, growing up as a son of a carpenter, a manual laborer, never doing any of the things we associate with greatness, never commanding an army, never writing a book, never holding any special titles, wandering around poor, the Son of Man had no place to lay his head, and ultimately dying the death of a common slave. You know, I mentioned Luke Ferry earlier, this philosopher who said that Christianity had this whole philosophical new vision of the world that transformed everything. He said it was this doctrine that did it. It was the belief that the eternal God, when he came among us, came among common, lowly, poor, on the margins humanity. And in so doing, he dignifies everybody. And then he enters into our darkness and he comes after us in passionate love and he enters into humanity and he goes all the way down to the depths of the, of the death on a cross so that in uniting himself with broken, fallen humanity, he might lift us up with himself in the resurrection so that one day we might share in his glory. That is stunning good news, isn't it? 
It changes everything. So I think the question I have as we stand back, we think about this text is simply, have you been trying too hard to squeeze Jesus into the life you're already living? Making him fit into your little world? Or have you actually come to bow your knee and orient the entirety of yourself around him and enter into his world, this cosmic reality? this beautiful reality of a creation that was called into being by the loving genius of God that was broken and marred and in deep need of healing but was the recipient of God's passionate love in the reconciliation of God in Christ. May that good news sit at the very center of our church. May it sit at the center of our lives and may we live all of our life and all of our existence to his glory and for his name. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we praise you that you have not left us on our own, that you have come after us in and through your son, Jesus. I thank you that you have gathered us as a church around Christ and that we have the privilege and the honor to be called your sons and daughters, co-heirs, joint heirs with your son, Jesus that you have eternally connected yourself to our humanity in the incarnation and that you have eternally connected us with you through that same act so that we might engage with you in new life, reconciled, healed life, and new creation. Fill our hearts, O God, we pray, with this song of praise to your son, Jesus. Amen.